Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, this is a big one for me, and I think it's a big one for a lot of you too because I get a lot of requests for these guys. It is Mike Lindup, founding member and keyboardist for Level 42. Now, I love this band. I've loved them forever. And if you're in the States, they're really only a two-hit wonder. They had this one, Something About You, and then Lessons in Love. But throughout the rest of the world, especially in Europe and the UK, they were big for a long time. They had a number of hits back in the day. There's no real kind of drama here. They called it quits around the mid-90s, um, but not because of any infighting or you know anything like that. They just went off to do other things. It had been a while. No big deal. Now, I know I make these kinds of platitudes a lot, but Mike has maybe my favorite singing voice ever, of anyone ever. And I say that because regular listeners to Level 42 know that his, mu- his voice is sort of like a special ingredient. He's not necessarily a backup singer, but he's the one kind of coming in to sing uh, the choruses, and he's more secondary, and it's always this magic potion, this magic formula that gets sprinkled on these songs that make them amazing. I can't think of another voice that is more welcoming and brings me more pleasure when I hear it than Mike Lindup's voice. I know that's kind of strange, but that's how I feel. Now, I gotta say, this was kind of a tricky one for me because I really had to fight the urge to go deep into the weeds. I mean, this is one of those where I could have gone song by song. Tell me about this one. Tell me about what happened when you made this song or wrote that song. And I try to make these conversations as universal as possible. You know, touch on the themes that people can relate to, but they don't have to necessarily even know who the band is. Um, And it's funny because I was fighting that urge this whole time. And yet when I went back and listened to this interview, I still, I think I'm still in the weeds. So... If you're not a fan of Level 42, uh, there's a lot of music in here, so hopefully you get turned on, but I don't know if you'll appreciate the conversation as much as diehard fans of the band will. So anyway, I hope you enjoy it. It's long, it's full of music, but to Level 42 fans, I think they will appreciate this conversation more. Also, uh, I just want to clarify, he and I uh, reference many people who have been in Level 42, and we usually just call them by their first names. So the original members of Level 42 were Mike, Mark King, the bass player who's still there, and then the Gould brothers, Phil and Boone. So when he references people named Phil and Boone and not a last name, I want to let you know that's who he's talking about. He's talking about founding members of Level 42. Okay, in case it's confusing. Anyway, hope you enjoy the conversation. Hope you hear a lot of music that you like. He called me from his home in London. Okay, so I always uh, kind of kick some of these off with how I discovered the band. I, like most Americans, came across Level 42 with something about you. But there was there are some very... Um, boy, Level 42 have been so prominent in my life ever since then. And one of the greatest periods of that was in early uh, mid-1991. So I graduated from high school. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. And uh, about three, uh, end of June of that year, my family picks up and moves to Cambridge, England. We had packed all of our stuff and I took with me just a little uh, tape case 
of music that I could listen to on my Walkman on the plane over there. And, you know, once we got landed and all that kind of stuff before our stuff, our things arrived. And yeah. the World Machine album was the only album that my entire family could agree on. And so we played that nonstop for like two months, you know? My goodness. Just, oh, <laughs> it was goodness. You're right. Uh, we just played that over and over and over again. And it became this sentimental thing still to this day that my entire, you know, my entire family, if someone brings up level 42, we go back to those days, those early days of moving to England and what that meant and it being the one thing that we could all agree on and uh, I was able to see you guys in concert shortly after that in late 91, early 92 at the Corn Exchange there in Cambridge. Oh, yeah. 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 And I remember Mark was wearing these really shiny black leather pants. And then I, my brother and I flew to Las Vegas maybe four or five years ago, five years ago probably, to see you at a casino down there. And, 2010. Uh, was that, oh, was it that long ago? It was a 30th anniversary tour. Okay, okay. So yeah, we flew to Las Vegas to see you guys down there. And once again, all these level 42 have been the soundtrack to some of the most wonderful experiences of my life, either because you were playing in the background or we went to participate with you and that made it meaningful. So I just want you to know that you especially um, hold a special place in our family's heart. I don't know if that matters to you, but it matters to us. Now on that topic, I love your voice. Uh, My personal feeling is that you are the greatest backup singer in history. And I'm wondering, this may sound dumb, but I'm wondering if you guys, if you as a band recognize that and use your voice specifically strategically, is it like, well, you know, I can always count on Mike's voice to come in that falsetto at about a minute, 10 seconds in almost every song. And it always elevates every song to this magic level with something like children say or something like that. Um, mm. is this a thought out plan thing? Do you think, you know, we're going to nail it when we put Mike on this particular song, how is your voice used? What songs you sing when you sing backup, those kinds of things? Well, um, it's not as n- nothing like as deliberate as that because sometimes particularly in the first seven years of the band where we had the original lineup, mm. you know, the songs, if you look at the credits were mostly co-composed between either two, three, four, or sometimes five members of the band, because Wally Badaru was effectively a fifth member of the band, even though he wasn't on stage mm-hmm. or on the videos. He was in the studio and, you know, played on the albums and co-wrote with us and then co-produced with us. So sometimes, you know, uh, melodies would, would not only come from myself and Mark, they would come from Phil, you know, or from Wally or from Boone. Mm-hmm. So... Quite often, Phil would write in a high register, so it might be his part that I was singing, mm. as it were. Um, it just so happened that the range, you know, kind of suited because that's tended to where he pitched things. Sometimes it was a case of, oh, this melody will be great if we double it an octave up with, you know, Mark down below and me up high. And, uh, you know, and of course, occasionally, you know, um, and more so probably as time went on, I would sing more more parts in my chest voice you know mm. kind of lead lines and you know mark's voice also de- developed where he could sing you know you know falsetto and fill out stuff too so yeah. it sort of didn't really become quite as 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 kind of you know pre-planned as as okay so we're gonna 
you know, as a strategy. Yeah. It was just kind of tended to be the way uh, that things worked out when we were writing. Okay. Huh. Yeah, I've always wondered, you know, what's the if there's a plan behind the scenes. Speaking of plan, when you guys started out, it can't be. Well, first of all, I should ask, what is your nationality? You know. Well, I'm British Belizean, so I'm British. I'm a. Uh, I'm born in the UK. Uh, my mother was is from Belize, uh, which was British Honduras, and mm-hmm. she moved to the UK permanently in '51, having come and served in the war previously. And met my father, who was English, and I was born in London, and you know, basically grew up here. Okay. Um, but I have that connection with Belize through my mum and 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 the extended family on her side, which is quite large. You know, yeah. there's quite a lot of Belizeans in the states and Canada, and um, you know, other parts of the world. Okay. Um, but basically, you know, you know, I carry a UK passport, and I think of myself as British, and therefore. You know, very upset with what's going on at mm-hmm. the moment, but yeah. uh, well, that's another conversation. <laughs> yep, it's no better over here, believe me. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Um, but yeah, but it, it was nice to, to kind of have that. Um, plus the fact that you know, I should say that my mum and dad were both musicians, so I grew up listening to all kinds of music. My mum came from, you know, her take on it was she was a natural singer, and she started singing in the folk clubs in the '60s when folk clubs were kind of like almost, as you say now, open mic venues. Mm. Um, people would come from all over the world, and you know, especially because of the war and the aftermath of the war, and you know, people coming from all countries. And they'd bring all their traditions with them, and that was not only folk songs, it could be protest songs, anti-war songs, uh, you know, religious songs, bawdy songs, you know, yeah. rude songs. All of that was the environment where mum kind of found herself you know, taking a spot every now and again, and then started to sort of build a, a career as a singer-songwriter and also trained as an actress. And then when she met my dad, my dad was a jazz musician who then became, uh, his his main work then fell into sort of arranging and uh, okay. orchestrating, and that was his thing. And he worked for a long time with John Dankworth um, as a co-arranger okay. and then went on to do a lot of big TV series. But that because of that, you know, the record collection was very diverse at home. So I grew up listening to all kinds of different music, um, which sort of, you know, then, uh, you know, informed me as a musician. And part of that was the sort of cross-cultural thing of, of having that sort of sure. Belizean part in the background. Right. That makes sense. Okay. Wasn't your mom a model or something too? I think I heard that no, once. No? No, she wasn't a model. No, okay. she was, she was, she was, she was an act. she trained as an actress. And she was on TV and, uh, you know. What was her stage. name? So we could, you uh, know, look her Nadia up. Ka- Nadia Katoos. That's right. Uh, C-A-T-T-O-U-S-E, yeah. Okay, um, okay. Uh, the reason I ask is, you know, there, you're four, sometimes five, excluding Wally, British guys who it sounds like at the beginning want to be Earth, Wind and Fire or something like that. Um, was the idea all along to just get funky or... No, actually, it wasn't. It, it wasn't Earth, Wind, and Fire, although it kind of it sort of kind of evolved in that direction. Actually, what we wanted to be, I mean, different if you would ask the individuals, but but we were kind of collectively, if you say, you know, you talk about the World Machine album and everyone mm-hmm. agreeing on that. If we could all on agree on collective influence <laughs> that informed the start of the band, it would be it would be John McLaughlin. It would basically be. Miles Davis, Bitches Brew, In a Silent Way, and the whole diaspora 
of those albums that then went on to do their own thing. So Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, Return to Forever, Mahavishnu Orchestra, Weather Report, um, a lot of instrumental stuff. And, and then, you know, throwing a bit of Jimi Hendrix, um, quite a lot of Stevie Wonder, some Cream. That's kind of like the starting point of Level 42. We started as an instrumental band and we had to write a song in order to get our first record deal. And then we had to start singing uh-huh. because, you know, because of that. And uh, and it just so happened that Mark kind of took the lead in terms of he his his co-compositions were the first things that we first thing that we recorded. And so that set in thing, the, the fact that he was kind of lead singer and bass and I became sort of, you know, secondary singer or backup singer and keyboards. And yeah. I tended to do the high bits. Okay. Yeah. So, well. And then, and there you get, and there, there's the kind of Earth, Wind, and Fire thing, because obviously we, you know, that music, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and you know, the Jacksons, and uh-huh. a whole bunch of stuff was was kind of there in the ether, not as a direct influence, but just because we grew up with it. Okay. Um, and you know, we found that our voices blended well together, either in harmonies or in octaves. So. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. I just, uh, you know, you, you're these, there's, aside from you and your, your background, the other guys are these white guys who happen to be really good at, you know, slap bass and writing very funky songs. And there's a progression throughout those first few albums too, especially, you know, maybe going into like Standing in the Light where Verdine even comes from Earth, Wind, Fire, even comes and produces you. It does seem like, you know, you guys are sort of finding your voice. And when you find it, you realize we want to be this kind of, I don't know, funky alternative R&B group, maybe. Well, yeah. I mean, okay, so there's another part of the story. There's one of the influence, major influences I miss, which is James Brown, uh, um, which we definitely all agreed on. And, you know, the thing is, um, I mean, it's much more easy to think of it now. But uh, in those days, I mean, the other three guys, you know, Phil and Boone, the brothers, and Mark. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mark was a drummer. Phil was a drummer. And Boone was a bass player and guitarist and sax player, and they sort of dabbled in stuff. But, you know, they grew up listening to records. And, you know, you can be anywhere in the world, and if something drops and it catches your attention, it can be any kind of music. And yeah. just because of where you live geographically doesn't necessarily inform the sort of style of music you're going to play. Um, and so, you know, that, that and, and Mark being a drummer, when he started learning the bass after he moved to London, he picked up on, on playing with the thumb because that immediately attracted him when he saw some guys doing that. He thought that's a great way to play the bass. He got a hmm. job in a music shop where there were no drums sold. So he okay. convinced the owners that he could play guitar <laughs> and right. bass and he could play guitar a bit. And he basically learned the bass while he was working at the shop in this sort of downtime in the back room and then honed his skills as we were starting as a band. Got it. But um, it fell very naturally for him to play with the thumb because of that sort of percussive, Mm-hmm. and you know syncopation rhythmic thing and so of course playing that way then you know you're going to be evoking stanley clark Good point. those kind of players because you know you know funk is is a lot about you know slap bass i mean yeah. slap bass isn't funky is kind of i don't know if i'd want to hear any of that <laughs> unless it was something really interesting so early on, you guys, now I don't even know, in those first few years, were you guys touring America or were you primarily just a British-based uh, outfit? Well, we were, we, you know, it took us a while to get to America. We, we started really um, playing, you know, first thing we did is we re- recorded our first album for 
Elite Records, which was an independent record label based in North London. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, our first two singles and our first album came out on Elite and eventually Polydor took us on and they Polydor did the distribution and our very first album to be released actually was the first Polydor album that we did after the Elite album. That came out afterwards and it's a bit convoluted. Yeah. But our audience, you see, the guy who ran Elite Records, he knew he had his ear to the ground he had a record shop and he kind of knew what was going on and there was this underground british jazz funk thing where kids were wanting to go out go to clubs and hear kind of sophisticated jazz fusion or funk music that you could dance to and put on nice clothes and it was a kind of like a a reaction to the punk thing i think where which was all about you know you know didn't have to be a great musician you just had to have attitude and an idea and uh and 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 so Andy heard this, heard us play, and thought that if we played the right song, it would be a sort of wedge in the door to this whole underground jazz funk movement and give us an instant audience. And also, there were certain DJs that were championing this kind of music that were playing it over here. And so um, we played a few clubs, and then our big break was to go and do eight shows in Germany, opening for the Police. Really? Who were at, yeah, who were at the height of their fame. They just released the Ghost in the Machine album. Yeah. Um, you know, every little thing she does is magic was the mm-hmm. current single, but they had all that, you know, all the stuff like, you know, uh, Roxanne on the Moon and, yeah. and, and Roxanne and uh, Message in a Bottle. Yeah. That was all in their repertoire and they were just massive in Germany. And so we, we had a sort of, as it turned out, a, a very good training to sort of, uh, become a really dynamic live band because the first show we arrived at in Germany, um, we hadn't, we got there late. We mm. didn't have time for a proper sound check. You know, we didn't have roadies. We were loading all the gear right. ourselves. We, you know, screwing the legs into my Fender roads as they're trying to open the doors and stuff. Uh-huh. You know, we go backstage, we kind of briefly meet the police and then it's like time for us to go on. The lights go down, the audience go apeshit because they think the police are coming on because there's been no indication on the tickets or the posters that there's a support band. So, of course, we go on stage, the lights come up on us and, the, and like half the audience start going boo because they think, you know, who are these guys? Yeah. And, uh, and that first show was, it was horrible because, mm-hmm. you know, half the audience were booing. We were trying to get them on our side but having only played a few club gigs to 300 people did not propose for playing 8,000 people in a sports hall who've yeah. not come to see you right um <laughs> they started throwing stuff at the stage coins a oh. uh, firecracker landed in mark crook of mark's arm um you know and we went off with our tail between our legs um and thought well we can't do another seven shows like this yeah so we we had a powwow and we decided okay this is not our audience. We've got to get them on our side. We threw away all our spangly, shiny jazz <laughs> funk clothes, right. went on jeans and T-shirts, got one of the German crew to make an announcement before we came on to say the police have some friends who are going to play for not mm. very long, so don't worry. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing turned around. And, no way. You know, it, uh, and so it was, a, it was a fantastic trial by fire for us. And on the way back from there, because um, you talk about where we played, um, mm-hmm. we did a couple of shows in Holland okay. which uh, because there were a couple of DJs that really liked our early stuff and for some reason Holland took to us like fire and really? our album went top 5 Love Games which was our current single at the time went top 10 
loads of TV, we went back and did loads of gigs, we are being interviewed left, right and centre, photo sessions, we were like superstars in Holland almost overnight. Mm-hmm. And that was really where it started. Excellent. And so we went back. And so then we, we discovered that, you know, the secret to our success was to go and do gigs. So we, we did we did tours, anything we get, university tours in the UK back to Holland, which then spread into Germany and then into other countries. But it was a while before we came to America. In fact, our first live gigs in America weren't until 86. Was that with Even Madonna? We, weren't you opening that, up for Madonna around that time? That, yeah, well, that was, um, no, it was in fact, we did a club tour. We did no. We did a Steve Winwood tour at the end of '86. Oh, nice! Opening for Steve Winwood. I love Steve then, Winwood. Yeah, well, he was flying high with his sure. high love yeah. single at the time, and uh, and he had a fantastic band. You know, he had yeah. uh, um, Delette McDonald, who just come off the Sting. She's great. Tour. Yeah, uh, and she was she was amazing, <clears> and uh, um, you know had a, a great musicians. I can't remember all the guys in the band right now off the top of my head, but. Anyway, he was playing sort of open air stages and uh, arenas and things. So we did that. Um, and this was at the time where it was we were playing big arenas in the UK and Europe. Okay. But, uh, uh, and then we went back in 87 and we did a club tour to like, you know, people who didn't know anything about us except for that one record, Something About You. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then we did the Madonna tour in the summer of 87. And then we went back and we did another club tour in the autumn. And then we went back and we did Tina Turner. Mm. And so we so we did spend a lot of time in America in 87 and the end of 86. And that was really our first gigs, even though we'd been there in 83, obviously, to record with Larry and Verdine yeah. for Standing in the Light album. We didn't actually do any live work until, you know, three years later. OK, as it were. OK. Just to put a button on the police thing that you mentioned, it's I'm, dots are connecting for me now because that recent... Uh, Gizmodrome album that uh, yes. Stuart Copeland and Mark King and Adrian Ballou and one or two other people I didn't know uh, yes. all got together to be on this one album and now it makes sense where those connections come from probably from you guys opening for the police back in the day. Have you yes. stayed in contact I, mean, I guess all this time? Maybe? I mean yeah I mean I think that um, you know I, I think that Stuart called up Mark for the Gizmodrome thing because you know, they, they had stayed in contact and probably bumped into each other. I mean, but not, we hadn't really stayed in contact in terms of like we made firm friends over back in okay. 81, okay. but it was more like, you know, the longer that time goes on, I think the longer that you're still, you know, still being successful to some yeah. degree, being a musician, you know, whereas obviously not everyone gets to last for so, still be playing 37 years on. So there's a sort of almost like a survivor's club. And uh, yeah. and I think a sense True. of, hey, look, we're still, we're still here. We've never yeah. played together. Let's do something. Makes sense. Okay. So, um, so prior to something about you, I want to, this is, that's a, seems like a real crux in the, in the career that I want to get to in a minute. But while you're sort of, are you racking up at least some hit songs? I mean, I think you are. Things like Chinese Way and
are these things, they're becoming hits in the UK and in Europe enough for you to sort of feel like, hey, we're, we're seeing some, some success here. The reason I ask is because I, I'm really interested in, in the transitions that go on in music artists' careers because there's a moment where you're a struggling artist and then you hear mm. yourself on the radio mm. and then you start making a little bit of money and you can start playing some gigs in other places and then you can quit your day job and you can just focus on music. Is that happening for you at, at least through through the UK and the rest of Europe as you're moving along? You're seeing enough hits and enough success that it's keeping you afloat? Yeah, I mean, um, fortunately, um, I didn't have to get a day job. Nice. Um, fortunately or unfortunately. I mean, there are aspects <laughs> of being in a day job which may be kind of useful training for life, but which I miss. Because I came straight out of college mm. into the studio to record the first album, the early tapes mm -hmm. for Andy Soika. And then there was a period of about three or four months where we were going on at our manager saying, you know, we need we need gigs, you know, we need to go and work, we need to yeah. go and play. And he's like, well, no one's really heard of you. And we were doing a few PA appearances where we miming to the record at the jazz funk clubs, but it mm -hmm. wasn't obviously satisfying. And then we started getting our first gigs in, in, in these sort of clubs. And then we did the, the police thing in Germany and then the Holland thing, which opened up. And then it was like we could make... Uh, we could make a living from playing live and we'd sold enough of our, by then we'd recorded our first proper album, Polydor, we're working on our second album and we sold enough of the first album for them to see, you know, we sold something like 20,000 copies, I think, mm -hmm. of the Level 42 album initially. And that was enough for them to see, okay, there could be a return on the investment because they, they'd signed us for what was then, it's unbelievable today, a standard three-year plus two one-year options contract. Mm. So basically they were signing us for five years in 1981 and with the whole idea that the A&R guys and the A&R department would link us up with a producer that would help us develop. And, you know, in other words, we had an apprenticeship that we could serve as a recording band, you know, and then obviously develop as a live band alongside and, and one informed the other. So um, it, it, I was able to sort of make a living almost from the second year of, of the band's inception, you know, okay. end of the first year into the second year of the band's inception. Right. Yeah, you know, Mark and I moved into a little flat together and, uh, you know, very cheap and, yeah. you, know, you know, black and white TV from the pawn shop and so on. But, <laughs> but you know, we, we had enough to go and then, then we moved to another house which you rented and things were going well. And then in 1982, I was able to buy my first flat or apartment um, from, you know, the, the, the profits that we'd made thus yeah. far, you know, you know, I was able to get my first car. So, it, you okay. know, it kind of, it, 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 it kind of went progressively up. It, it never, it didn't, we didn't have an overnight smash except for that thing in Holland. Okay. Um, but in terms of like the, the, the career of the band, it, it sort of progressively got better. And then, you know, so from the first album, level 42, there was love games was a single. Yeah. And then from the second album, Chinese Way, which got our first top 20. Yeah. And then Standing the Light album, that got us our first top 10 with The Sun Goes Down, Living mm -hmm. It Up.
follow me. I saw a soldier standing in a bar. Looked so dark, he'd come so far. Said I need to love someone before they drop the atom bomb. What's that like, by the way? I wanted to ask you about that because you you're the singer on that one. Are you um you know what are I, I'm always curious what the what the experience is like when you you know you're hearing yourself on the radio and now you're up to that point you're probably used to hearing yourself sing that beautiful background thing that you do but this is your song is that uh, an extra special experience? Well, I mean it's great yeah it's great to be you know on as as a lead singer and have the focus on on me at the beginning of a song for a change but. You know, when you say it was my song, it was it was my co-creation. But actually, um, you know, uh, that song is quite special because it came about when Larry and Verdine were out of the building. They'd oh, gone really? off because yeah, because prior to recording over there, um, which was their insistence that we go to the complex and spend a couple of months living in, you know, Los Angeles and record the album with them, which was a great, obviously a great experience. But yeah. prior to that, you know, we'd gone in the studio and. You know, we'd work until two in the morning because you're young kids and you do. Sure. You work until you're tired. Right. And then you get up at 11 and then you work the next day and, and you don't have weekends. You know, it's like you work in the studio until the booking time is over and hopefully you get everything done. Yeah. But when we got to L.A., you know, we quickly discovered that Larry and Verdine, you know, being kind of, you know, semi-family people and, and a bit older, uh-huh. um, you know, they would work from... You know, work would start at something like 11 o'clock in the morning and then would finish at dinner. Uh-huh. And then weekends, there was no work. Right. And I was thinking, it's going to take us out. It's going to take us weeks to get this out done at this rate. But actually, it was it was very productive. Yeah. But so there was one evening where Larry was kind of I'm sure it, you know, Larry in his lugubrious voice said, oh, we got to go and see some young guy called Prince playing. Oh, goodness. Prince, you know, this was like when Prince was starting out, uh-huh. and he was almost like, "Well, I'm going because I've been invited, but you know, it's probably not going to be great anyway." You guys can, and we said, "Listen, we 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 feel, you know, we don't want to go home. We we kind of feel like we got some more in us." So they said, "Okay, you know, you just take the studio, and you know, the the, the assistant tape operator stayed to record, and and we jammed, and then Wally came up with these two sequences, which were the basis of the sun goes down." And we just jammed them instrumentally. Uh-huh. And uh, next day we played them to Larry and Vadim. They really liked the vibe. And so, again, yeah, let's come up with some top lines. And so, uh, you know, I came up with the da 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 And then Wally came up with the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
and I uh-huh. remember hearing it um, on Radio Luxembourg. On, oh, uh, Radio Luxembourg. I mean, was this uh-huh. wonderful mythical station which you I've could heard only about get it. on. You couldn't get it on FM. You could only get it on medium wave, and it, because it was broadcast from over the in somewhere in the continent, uh-huh. it had this. Uh, and because it was medium wave, it would sort of kind of ebb and flow in volume and phase and mm. so on. And so, uh, and they'd have this a record that was chosen for every week. It was called Power Play, and they'd play it on the hour every hour. And somehow, our manager, because he had record company connections, because he worked at EMI Records, he knew some of the DJs, and he knew one of these DJs at Luxembourg. Um, you know, and he said, listen, you know, my brothers have got the band, they got this record, what do you think? And they really liked it. And so it was power play. And I remember hearing our first record on Radio Luxembourg, wow. ebbing and flowing with all of these other oh, wow. as a kid I used to listen to. That was that was the real magic moment yeah. of hearing yourself on yeah. the radio. Oh, man. How did you even get Verdine, by the way? I mean, here you guys, like I said, you're this British obscure, not obscure, but, you know, I mean, probably to them. I don't know if you were on their radar or not. Did someone just say... Well, Let's get some balls and ask Verdine White to produce our third album. No, 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 no. I think they approached us. I, really? I understand it. Oh wow! They were on. They were. They were either on tour or working in. I think Scandinavia, at the time. And someone, mm-hmm. um, I think, so that they'd got hold of a cassette of our first album, the Level Forty Two album. Okay. Either they got hold of it or they heard it on the radio. I don't exactly know the story, but they discovered the band. And they really liked what they heard. And then they approached our management to say, you know, we, we'd really like to work with you. And so then um, we were flown across to um, Los Angeles in the Christmas 82. I remember it was Christmas because I was walking around Magic Mountain hearing Christmas carols <laughs> in 70 degree heat, wearing a T-shirt, thinking this is all wrong. But, um, <laughs> so we had a meeting with them um, for a few days and it was agreed that they would produce our next album. And so then uh, in March of 83, we flew over and, you know, we were given apartments in the marina and and that was the... Oh, but, but previous to that, actually, they came over to London to hear the demo tapes and sort of get an idea of what the what was going to be on the album. But wow. yes, it was they approached us to produce us. So, That's incredible. You know, which was very flattering. No I'm kidding. Oh my gosh. Okay, so we're kind of at the point now where uh you know, World Machine, which is basically it's almost like a compilation album. I mean, it's got, you know, pieces of previous albums plus some new songs. When you brought uh um something about you to your label, was there a was there a again going back to strategy? Was there a strategic push? We've got something here. It's time to break level forty two worldwide. It's going to happen on the back of this song. Here's our plan to make that happen. Is that is that kind of what went? Are those the meetings that were happening as this album was getting ready? <laughs> that sounds like. The, the Hollywood version of the story oh, really? that you've just told. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's kind of, I could see, you know, um, you know, maybe John Boyega could play me in the film. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I say that because we've just literally got home after watching Star Wars. Did you really? The Did Last you like Jedi it? This afternoon, which okay. blew us all away. It oh, was fantastic. Okay, good. Me yeah. and my family, I'm, I'm talking about. Yeah. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, no, actually, actually it ha- happened slightly differently to that. What happened was that we we tended to write a bunch of songs. Um, you know, we'd write an album or, or write songs towards an album and then go and record it. We generally didn't write individual songs. Um, and so the World Machine album was like you know, the next album 
that we were going to do. Mm-hmm. But there was there was a bit of strategy in that Mark, having done four albums, um, and and sold you know a, a decent amount and got build, building up a following. Mark kind of saw that there was potential for us to actually you know jump a few levels, and he basically he, he kind of threw the gauntlet down and said, "Listen, you know I'm not sure." that I want to continue with this band the way that it's going at the moment, because I think we could do a lot better than that. And he said, I think we should take um, more time in the pre-production of our songwriting. And I think that will, you know, will give us, you know, a a much more successful album project. Okay. And so there, you know, there was some obviously, you know, discontent about the sort of, you know, his view, but, one thing that he was right about was that actually doing a lot more work on the writing of the songs prior to going to the studio it could only be beneficial as because, you know, previous to that, you know, with the True Colours album and with a certain extent with Standing in the Light and definitely with Pursuit of Accidents, we go in with half an album written mm-hmm. and then we'd sort of make it up in the studio, you know, which is which is a skill in itself and, and is not, you know, is not a bad thing, but it's a bit of a risk. Mm. Um, because you know you need to come up with the goods, and maybe the goods you come up with, you know, might have been better, stronger as, as songs, perhaps. Okay. So we kind of um, we demoed a lot of the songs of the World Machine album. Mark had a a, a a top floor of his house in London then, and we all went round with our ideas, and we kind of worked on stuff. And Wally came over, and so th- in in actual fact. Um, something about you was just one of the songs that was, you know, to go on the album, and and it was a song that initially Phil and I kind of came up with the initial idea of, and once we Mark and Wally had thrown their part in, originally Phil was going to write the words, and it was sounding really strong as a demo, and we had high hopes, but as sometimes happens when you go and try and translate that into the actual performance, when we were in the studio doing the World Machine album, doing all the tracks. For some reason, something about you as a backing track, it didn't have a vibe. Mm. It kind of didn't have the thing that we thought it would have. And so we said, okay, other things were sounding really happening. Um, So we spent a lot of time on them. And then at the end, we sort of came back to this song and thought, okay, well, it should have been a great song, but it wasn't. So maybe we need to work on it. So Phil, Mark and Wally did some work on the production. They beefed up the drum sound and... um, yeah, Wally added some things on it. And then Boone, kind of out of the blue, said, I've actually written some words for this. And Phil was kind of in umbrage because he thought that was his kind of project in terms of lyric writing. But we looked at the words and they were really good words. And so, you know, Mark said, well, let's let's try them out. Yeah. And so we sang the, the melodies that we had to Boone's words and we started putting the backing vocals on. And then suddenly it's like we got ourselves a song. This is this is a single, definitely. And so we got our A&R guy in from Polydor and he listened to it and he said, yeah, I think I could go with this. And uh, unfortunately, um, our manager, our management changed because Phil and Boone's brother, John, had been managing us up to that point. And um, because he'd heard some of the tracks before they were finished, he felt that they weren't maybe strong enough. And um, so we basically sacked him (laughs) on on the basis of that. I mean, that's a very short story, but... um, um, you know, he basically expressed kind of a lack of confidence and thought other people needed to be getting into the songwriting. And we were like, John, you don't understand. This is going to be yeah. one of our best albums ever. Right. But because as musicians, 
you know, you can always hear the potential of something, whereas you play it to someone and they're hearing what's actually coming off the tape. Right. And sometimes there's a gap between what you know it can sound like in the end and what it actually does sound like at the moment. Right. So uh, now was and, his and being the, sacked that lead eventually to the Gould brothers sort of, you know, exiting as well? I think it was probably it was probably the start of it, although okay. it wasn't. Uh, I mean, there was no intention that we were going to sure. split up with the band and, and, and we carried on for another, you know, two years. But I think, you know, there, there was a, obviously a, a, a flaming split there, which wasn't yeah. great. And, okay. and someone, else, you know, a guy called Paul Crockford came in who was then managing the band and, uh, you know, was no longer the family member. So that probably added up right. to it. But it was also musical differences and personal differences. And uh, in Boone's case, not actually enjoying the ever more busy schedule that we had and you know in fact you yeah. know i remember being on the tour bus in america sort of doing our first club tour or something and being kind of complaining saying you know we're doing this playing these places where no one's heard of us to hardly anybody and we're playing massive places in europe yeah. why are we here what's the point and uh, i'm like thinking boone you know can't you see the the point is we're trying to break a new territory which is a massive territory Right. And it's going to take a lot of work. Yeah. And yes, okay, okay, so it's a bit of a come down. We're having to load our stuff on a little stage again rather than have roadies, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, But anyway, but I think also mm. what was behind that was he just wasn't a natural road animal. Got plus it. it was affecting his relationship, his, you know, his, Understandable. his kind of romantic relationship from being away for so long. And, you know, yeah. it was hard on everyone. Yeah. yeah. Um, but okay. that, those were more, that those were more, that was more for his, for his side of the breakup. But yeah, it's so something about you eventually emerged um, as being the lead single for World Machine. Yeah, you know, and uh, it did really well over in Europe, and then it it did it did really well over in America. I mean, yeah, it, sure did. You know, and because of course you have this whole other system of of you know airplay charts and so on. Um, but I um, mean, you know, it was the song that really broke us in America. It did. Um, you know, I think it's one of those songs that everyone knows, but maybe doesn't know who sings. I think even yeah. to this day, if you say level 42 in the States, not everyone knows what you're talking about. Yeah. And, yeah. But you say, oh, you know, that song, something about you. And then they, uh, sounds vaguely familiar. Sing it to me. And then you, yeah, but yeah, you yeah. play it for them and they know exactly what this is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've always thought that was unfortunate, even though you guys are kind of considered in the States anyway, a bit of a two hit wonder. Um, yeah. Thankfully, with Lessons in Love on the next album.
I, now, I, I never ask this question because it seems like the easiest thing in the world you could Google if you wanted. But what does level 42 even mean? Where did that come from? It came, well, it came from the fact that we found it very hard, which I understand isn't uncommon, um, to actually think of a, a name um, <laughs> when we were in a room together, you know, yeah. a couple of guys sleeping at our ex-manager's house and we'd gather around and we'd, you know, talk about this guy, Andy Sohu, wanted to offer us a deal. And Okay, so what are we going to call ourselves? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, names would be pitched in and they would be dissed by other guys <laughs> across the table and right. we couldn't agree on a name. Um, eventually, you know, we were like a rehearsal band at the music college. We were using the music college that I was studying at as our rehearsal room, using the percussion room because I was a percussion student there. On Monday evenings, it was free. So I said, listen, let's use that. And I booked our first ever gig at the student union bar at Guildhall. Mm. And that was another story in itself because the student union bar wasn't within the main college, which was in this sort of complex called the Barbican. Um, it, it was in a separate um, part next to some luxury flats, <laughs> these high-rise flats. Yeah. And there was a piece of glass broken in the window behind the stage, the little stage where we were playing in this bar. So as a result, um, our gig got shut down by the residents through the police being called after about three numbers. There's an irony there. Previous to that gig, on the last rehearsal, there's another story which I need to tell you about this, but, okay. but this first story was that Mark came in and said, okay, we're called 88. So we kind of went, uh, why? And mm. he said, well, we need a name. I just came on an 88 bus. I thought, well, 88, it's, it's a number, it's short, it's simple, it's easy to remember. It doesn't mean anything because we all wanted a name that didn't mean anything that mm. would sort of tie us down to later. And so we did that first gig under the name of 88 and one of our instrumental tracks um, on the first album is called 88 as a result. days later uh, i think some of the guys were walking around town and found out there was a, a group in existence a gigging group mm. um with some big guys in it like clem clemson and i think jack bruce and it was wow. called 88 uh, okay. rocket 88 and it was obviously going to go on and be a massive group and our 88 was going to mm-hmm. suffer so we thought well we better change it and uh and boone and mark were reading the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy uh, um, by douglas adams 
Mm-hmm. And if anyone's read that book, they'll know that the number 42 is a very significant part of the story because it's uh, in the story, you know, this it's, it's, it's a parody on science fiction. And yeah. they design this massive computer to work out the meaning of life. And it comes out with the answer 42, and mm. which, of course, no one understands as an answer. Right. Um, and then the computer says, I'm going to build an even better computer to help you understand the question. Right. <laughs> so that you understand the 42. Anyway, that's the story. But Got we it. took the 42. We substituted 88 for 42 and thought, right, we'll call ourselves 42. And then Andy, our first producer, who was putting out our first single at the time, said, uh, kind of came back with, I think level 42 works much better. Mm. Um, I wasn't happy with the 42 on its own. And we kind of turned up our noses a bit like you do as... 20 year olds and thought well we'll we'll think of a better name later on but of course we didn't need to okay okay i've always wondered interesting the other story the the other story i need to tell you is is that because in the very first days when we were getting together and and jamming in the percussion room before we had a gig dominic miller was the first guitarist Mm -hmm. in the band because uh, he was studying at guildhall and phil gould the drummer was having part-time lessons there that was the guildhall connection but it was me and Dominic and Phil and Mark uh, doing the first jam session. And then on the second jam session or third jam session, uh, Phil brought in Boone or Mark brought in Boone, Phil's brother, who was also on guitar. So then mm-hmm. we had two guitars in the room mm-hmm. and bass, drums and piano. And that was one guitar, I think, too many for Dominic um, because he sort of he drifted away from the rehearsals and so never became part of the band, although he ended up. Of course, guaranteed big, big time. Yes. Uh, well, first by getting the gig with Sting on the Soul yeah. Cages album, and mm-hmm. thenceforward is is a is a permanent member of Sting's band. And right. then, of course, he, you know, I brought him in on the Staring in the Sun album. He plays at Staring in the Sun, and then on the Guaranteed album. Yeah. Didn't and he have on, a time there with a the band um, King Swamp? Do, he did. That, yes. Yeah, I had Walter yep. Ray, the lead singer of King Swamp, on here. I love that band, and we talked about Dominic a little bit on that interview too. Yeah, he because on his way to the police, yes, he had King, he was had some time in King Swamp and also in the World Party. Mm. Oh, that's right, which, that's right. Yeah, you know, and he got the stinging basically because he did a session for Phil Collins that mm. was being co-produced by uh, Hugh Padgham, and Hugh Padgham put a good word into Sting, and uh, got it. There you go. The rest is history. Yeah, and life takes off. Okay, so one of the things we talk about on here is sort of the business side. Um, I mean. I don't know. You have a co-writing credit on something about you. That's the biggest hit. Could you live off something about you money for the rest of your life? I Is... wish. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, no. Okay. I've always wondered, no. you know, because it's such a staple even to this day. I know. It's, it's, it, is, it, uh, it is my biggest co-write in terms of the songs I've co-written. It is the biggest one in terms of, you know, I look at my royalty statements. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd very much... You know, I like to write another couple of something about use, yeah, wouldn't it be as nice? it were. Um, but you know, it's it's a lottery, really. You know, as an yeah. artist, you know, you write stuff. You write stuff for the reasons that you write it, and then, you know, something takes off, and it's got nothing to do with your intentions. And then you hope to reproduce it, or you hope to, you know, write something as good as, or yeah. you know, something that. You know, the other half of the world would like as much, and you just don't know. There's no, there's no formula for doing that. But um, you know, obviously, I'm proud of the fact that I'm a co-writer on something about you. But I don't spend every day going into studio thinking, right, I'm going to write another something about you. Mm, you know, okay. I'm going to write another something about you because you know that would be self-defeating. 
as yeah. an artist you know yeah. you you want to write something new um you know i always want to write something new something fresh you know you know there are times when i think you know when when the tax bill comes in yes i'd like to write something successful again <laughs> right. um, um so you know and you got to feed your family you got to put your yeah. kids through school and all of that so it is always a, it's always a consideration but you know it's not like you're sitting in front of a calculator you know you're sitting in front of a of of something that will make music and and yeah. the thing about the writing songs is that when it lights you up what you're working on then you know, there's no there's no guarantee it'll be successful but there's some guarantee that it'll be satisfying and if it's satisfying to you then hopefully it'll be satisfying to <laughs> other people so kind of that's the thing i mean you know we're writing a, a new ep or new album are you or whatever it'll be Excellent. at the moment okay yeah mark sent me um some you know a kind of a work in progress on a song that we started co-writing back in 2010 that we sort of you know we wrote a few tunes and then we sort of listened to them back and thought well they're not really happening now but uh, you know sometimes this happens you know the benefit of a few years you go back to an old idea and sometimes you can rethink it and revive it and circumstances have changed you know we've got a brass section in the band now and it's like oh. this old idea that we thought maybe wasn't happening suddenly um with a rethink and then with the brass section on suddenly makes sense and it's like maybe the timing wasn't right for it mm. i mean i can say the same for a few songs like hot water for example the follow-up single by the way in the states to something about you i think it was yeah yeah which okay. caused all kinds of problems because you know bless bless you because over in america you know they have this whole they had i don't know if it still is the same case you know radio stations would be programmed to play certain genres mm -hmm. whereas over in, in europe you know it'd be like there'd be a top 40 and then there'd be you know radio stations wouldn't so so much be genre-led but at the time mm -hmm. particularly in the 80s it was like you know Okay, so something about you is kind of, it was seen as kind of crossover AOR, mm -hmm. and then Hot Water was seen as R&B, and mm -hmm. then Leaving Me Now, which was then I think released afterwards, was seen as AOR, and it's like, you know, we'd get the, the, the record pluggers going, you guys are a problem, you know, you yeah. don't stick to your genre. And yeah. it's like, but that's what we've always done. We've always wanted to go and write another album that isn't a carbon copy of the last album or the album before but it kind of caused a bit of a, a, yeah. a problem with that but yes hot, hot, back to hot water so yeah. hot water was one of those tracks where we were in the studio doing this true colors album with ken scott down in hastings and it was like we'd run out of songs and we needed more songs 
And Mark said, well, what about this old riff that we'd sometimes mucked around on? Mm. The Hot Water riff was the very, very first riff that Mark played me that he'd made a demo of in a four track in the house that he was crashing on a floor of in <laughs> North London before Level 42 started, when he was wow. just came up to London to get a job in a music shop. And he and the the, the he had a mini moog at the guy's house because the guy was working for the music shop that Mark was working for, and he'd done this moog bass line, and then then on another track he'd done the, and then on another track he'd done, so that was it was an instrumental demo that was occasionally jammed in the rehearsal studio that actually saw the light of day because we were desperate for another track in 1984 yeah. and so we laid down 15 minutes of this track <laughs> with the bindle section a 15 minute jam uh-huh. that of course the bpm you know was quicker at the end than it was at the beginning uh-huh. so if you listen carefully to the final single of hot water you'll hear that the bpm varies you know as the song oh. goes in but basically we put a top Great. line on it you know we, we came up with the the lyrics and 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 fortunately also there was a a documentary on, on bbc about um hip-hop and african bambata which mm. really inspired us to then throw a few samples at it because there were these machines that you could sample for one second yeah and so we so we were we, we, mark was sort of kind of getting on that bandwagon and so hot water that was you know that was a that was another you know old track that's yeah. revived and saw the light of day in a new way so that's the thing about songwriting, you know, sometimes you can, you know, something, um, you know, living it up, the backing track was done in an evening, mm-hmm. uh, the sun goes down, and the top line was probably done very shortly afterwards, that was a very quick song to write, you know, and some songs yeah. take ages to write, some songs you struggle with, you know, it's, it's always a different story. Yeah, uh, speaking of writing, you, you particularly have a very unique kind of, um, I don't know, perspective, I guess. You seem to write about sort of heavy things. I think about songs like Lasso the Moon or People. I mean, these are not, you know, these are not typical love songs. You're talking about bigger, broader issues, heavy issues. Mm. Uh, even your solo album, Changes, which is really hard to find, by the way, uh, at least yes. in the States. Hey, gang, let me break in for just a little bit of business. Uh, not a lot to share this time, although uh, Steve Kilby of The Church, that episode got a huge response for us anyway. And I'm not surprised because I thought it was one of our very best. And it seems like a lot of you did too. I was getting so much good feedback on that one. And I'm really glad. He was amazing. I wish, I always tell people, 
you know, we just, we get lucky sometimes. Believe me, I wish every episode was the very best episode in the world. And sometimes we get there and sometimes we don't. But boy, Steve Kilby, um, he got us there. So anyway, thank you to everyone who listened and who shared. I want to name, we got a few of them this time. Darren Callahan, Ben Frazier, Joe Royland of Sit and Spin, Robert Seward, Susan McDonald, Suburban Underground, Carrie Carlson, Bud Verge, Anthony Porter, Hub Rigel, Paul Hicks, Chris Barris, Newberry Comics, Greg Chittister, Jay Sabluski, Andy, I forgot your last name, you're just Andy on Twitter, I see Greg, Joe Becht, and Jason Simons. And some of those had to do with our Verdine White special bonus episode as well, which uh, was is not my favorite. Uh, it, that was a really, he was a very difficult interview. And um, not that many people have downloaded it or listened to it either. So even despite him probably being the second biggest name we've ever had on the show. Very strange. Uh, anyway, I'm not really taking any requests at the moment because I'm bombarded with doing my own stuff and trying to fulfill some of your older requests. So we'll push that off for another few weeks. But I did want to write one, uh, read off one more review. We got one review on Facebook, uh, which I'm grateful for. It's been a while since we had anything on iTunes, and I think that's the one that matters. A while ago there, we were we were in the top 200 there for a while, and I think it's because we got like three reviews and a few new subscribers within the span of a week. That's really all it takes. So if, you know, half a dozen of you out there listening could just go in and write some kind of review, that would help us so much because then we get, you know, vaulted into the top performing podcasts, then other people see it. That's how this stuff works. Anyway, Paul Hicks. Embarrassed to be so late to the best party in podcasting, John tracks down fascinating people from the world of music and gives them the space to tell their amazing stories. John seems to have a healthy obsession with Australian artists, I do, who made a big stateside splash in the 80s. So there's some great interviews about pseudo-echo, real-life choir boys, and just today, the church. I'm hooked. Thank you, Paul. Paul's the one who, and again, nobody has to do this, but he sent me this great three-disc compilation of 12-inch remixes of 80s uh, alternative Australian hits. And it's got real life and pseudo-echo and uh, split ends and all this great stuff uh, that a lot of it was, some of it I knew, a lot of it was new to me. And so uh, this is going to be playing a part, by the way, Australian music is going to be playing a part in an episode coming up in about a month or so. So I've got this kind of Australian rock thing going on right now. I'm really into it. So anyway, thank you, Paul, for writing that great review. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Please, if you get a chance, write us a review on iTunes. Um, It really helps. I think it helps. I think that's why we get put in the top 200 and stuff like that, is because we get a few of those reviews all at once. So anyway, if you don't mind. Uh, And then one more thing. Oh, by the way, just go in and check out a shirt if you want. $19.99 black and gray. There's a bunch of other things in there like sweatshirts and hoodies and uh, long sleeve t-shirts. They're all more expensive. You can buy whatever you want, obviously, but go into Amazon, just type in hustle podcast merch. You'll see the t-shirts, uh, pick one up. All right. Thanks everybody. Let's get back to Mike. I'm working on a re-release. Um, I'm in negotiations with universal at the moment Good. to try and get a, a re-release with some, you know, bonus material so i can get that album out again and uh, because I, I think it's sort of a it, it didn't 
you know, well, I'm bound to say this, of course. It didn't do as well as I'd like it to, to <laughs> right. have done for various I, reasons. I love that album. And uh, I, I, sorry, but I had to download it illegally because otherwise I'd have to pay out the nose for it. And then, um, and then Conversations in Silence, you know, your solo album that's all instrumental. Mm. sort of you know i don't know heavy i don't know it's you're are you carrying with you some like heavy burdens that you need to exorcise in your songwriting or is that just no, what no, speaks to you or what do you think that's the first that's that's the first time i've heard that i mean oh i, I mean people would say i was i was i was seemed serious when in fact yeah, I, maybe. that was just my demeanor but um i've never heard that, <laughs> that i wrote heavy songs because i mean some of my early songs like wings of love and weave your spell are very kind of I think they're very frosty true, love songs. True, to yeah, be you're honest. right. You're right. I mean, people was yes, was was a kind of a, a sort of yeah yeah. Why 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 can't people sort of be decent? I mean, this was a time in the sort of early eighties where we started to observe the the rise of, you know, um, you know, Gordon Gecko's uh, yeah. over here and this sort Good of point. thing and 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 the sort of the yappies and the upwardly mobile and uh, sort of uh, thinking well, people are getting left out here. Yeah. So that's partly the reason for that. Um, Lasso the moon. I love those lyrics, but I, I had yeah. nothing to do with them. Remember 
written by this guy called George Green. I could have sworn uh, you wrote that. No, I guess you just sang it. Huh? Okay. No, no. I mean, it's a compliment that you're paying because obviously the art of a good singer is to make the 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 words yeah. he or she are singing to their own. And uh, I mean, I could I could relate to it basically because Mark had. Um, you know, we'd, we'd lost Phil as a lyric writer and Mark had somehow got hold of George Green, who was a kind of Nashville-based... I mean, I don't think he lives in Nashville, but he was kind of from that sort of stable of, of writing. And he wrote fantastic lyrics. And he sent across some lyrics. And when these came through the fax machine, as it was, mm-hmm. um, I jumped on it and said, I love this, and I'm going to write a song about it. And... Uh, the lasso, the moon thing, obviously comes. Maybe not obviously, but but it, it's a reference to um, it's a wonderful life. Where, oh sure. You know Jimmy mm-hmm. Stewart's, you know, taking this girl out for a date and they got no money at all, and he's talking about lassoing the the moon. You know, mm-hmm. basically anything to get the girl. And so, and I could relate to the fact that you know, as a as a as a young man, you kind of you want to be a hero and you want to make, you make all these big promises, you know, I'll be the one that lights the fire and, you know, yeah. goes out and grabs the wood and builds a house over your head and I'll, you know, never let you down and all yeah, of this true. sort of okay. thing yeah. <laughs> that yeah. young, you know, young people say, but yeah, I just love the, and love the way he wrote the words. And so okay. I suppose a bit like if, if I can compare myself, you know, with Elton John for a moment, which mm. he might take Cambridge at, but I don't care. But I like you guys better anyway. Right, yeah, well, well, Bernie Taupin, you know, would write these amazing words, and then Elton would get the words, and he very quickly, as I understand it, in certain cases, I think your song was written in about fifteen or twenty minutes. He'd take the words and he'd put them to music in a way that just kind of fell into place, and yeah. it doesn't always happen. But with these words, "Lassie the Moon," the song really fell into place very quickly. Yeah. Um, okay. And and it, and it's yeah, and and I suppose. Yeah, I'm thinking, have I written much jolly stuff? I'm going to have to have a look at my catalogue again. Yeah, I'll have to go back and look too. I thought I had a pretty good handle on it. I guess I missed the last <laughs> of the moon thing. Sorry about that. I, uh, no, that's okay. Um, you know, wh- because you know, because it actually doesn't matter what, what I think and what, what I want my reputation to be. True. Actually, I've discovered so many times that people read their own things into songs and lyrics and even have completely yeah, different point. interpretations. <clears throat> And that's sort of the the way it is because then I have mine about other people's songs that I like. Yeah, yeah. You know that, that you know. Very I think, oh, wasn't the song about this? No, actually, <laughs> no. he wrote it about that, and I had no idea. That's come up a lot on here, where I think I'm talking to someone I love, and I think I understand it all, and then I'm corrected by what was really going on. I'll tell you a quick story about Guaranteed. I bought that in an HMV there in Cambridge when it came out. And uh, saw you guys in concert shortly after that. And then I remember uh, years later, probably around 1999, 2000, I was in college and I was a, I worked on the college newspaper. I was a journalism major and I'm in the newsroom and I'm kind of bonding with my buddy, Brian Henderson, about kind of, we're the only two guys we know that like certain types of music, you know? And I remember him pulling out and he said, hey, I've got this, you might be the only other person that would like this. And I've got this CD here that I think you'll like. And he pulls out of his backpack a copy of Guaranteed. And it was sort of like this secret, you know, like, don't show anybody. I know we're sort of nerds here, but not nerds because we like Level 42, but we're the only two people bonding over, you know, the kind of music we like. He's like, I think you'll like this. Do you want to borrow it? And he pulls it. And I was like, oh, believe me, I got Guaranteed covered. I already own this. I've seen them in concert. They're one of my favorite bands. So we kind of had this, you know, moment there with, uh, with the Guaranteed album. 
Yes. So uh, I hope you don't mind that I just throw my stories at you once in a while. No, <laughs> no, it's, it's okay. fine. It's okay, fine. Good, good. Um, okay, so then, you know, Running in the Family comes out. Lessons in Love is also a huge hit. I remember seeing the video on Friday Night Videos here in the States and everything. Uh, yeah. I love that album. That that might be the most complete uh, Level 42 album, maybe from start to finish. I don't know. That's kind of how I feel sometimes. But then on the next one... It all sort of starts to come apart, I guess, or at least in the States anyway. The perception is that staring mm. at the sun is, you know, not as good. And I don't personally have a problem with that album. It's not as strong, but it's still good, I think. You know, Heaven in My Hands is a great tune and everything. There's a perception that there's a stumble with that one. Did, were you feeling that too? Did it did it feel like a stumble or a step back at the time? There was a there was a kind of in the game plan. Um, it sort of didn't go to plan in the sense that you know by that time you know Phil and Boone had both left the band, which mm-hmm. was a big deal. So and although Boone was present on the Staring Sound album in terms of he supplied lyrics, he was no longer a band member. Phil was gone. Um, and we had, you know, Alan Murphy and Gary Husband in the band. So it was a kind of time of transition. At the same time, the Running in the Family album, which had built on the success of the World Machine album, you know, um, was so big um, that, you know, the, the feeling was, oh, right, so the next album is going to go even bigger and we're going to break America. And, you know, the mm-hmm. MD was talking about this and blah, blah, blah. And I think with that in mind, there was maybe a, you know, a certain amount of, okay, so maybe we, we should make it, you know, uh, we, we could make it a bit more guitar orientated and so on. Although it didn't end up that way, but there right. was certainly a feeling of a sort of change of change of direction. Plus, um, you know, Mark and I were, 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 we were on a 13 month tour. We wrote the album, you know, half the album in a hotel in Ireland and mm. then f- recorded it in France. Cause we were doing this sort of, we were spending this whole year out of the country and, you know, we were trying to carry the torch from something that had sort of changed. And then, you know, 
this this conversation that I sort of referred to before, we we had a meeting with a big record plugger in LA who said, heaven in my hands, he said, you know, you guys are giving us, giving me a problem. You're making me look bad because, you know, what is this record? You know, is it, really? it kind of sounds half R&B, it sounds half this, sounds half that, you know, and, and I can't get, I can't get the people to sort of, to play the record and, you know, Oh boy! Um, so, <laughs> that just makes me angry. You know, <laughs> I know. It, well, it, well, it, it, it mystified us and, and you know, frustrated yeah. and infuriated us, of course. But you know, this is kind of what we were dealing with at the time. And although the Heaven in My Hands record, you know, it did really well, and it, and to, you know, with hindsight, it's been one of our most iconic records because they've yeah. used that fanfare in various sports stings mm-hmm. and so on and so on. Um, um, but I think overall. You know, it wasn't our greatest album in terms of songwriting. I don't think it was our greatest album in terms of production either. You know, we were suddenly you know, a lot of sequences and digital stuff was coming in and mm-hmm. we were finding a new way of writing. Um, and we were writing and recording with, with guys who, great musicians though they were, they'd not been an organic part of the band. And so mm-hmm. there, wasn't, there wasn't the same sort of contribution to the songwriting, although Gary did, you know, do some co-writing in it. Um Inevitably, it was going. It was there was a shift. So uh, and then, you know, after an initial period of sales, um, you know, I remember <laughs> the phrase, you know, this album hasn't fulfilled its brief. It was supposed to have done five million, and you've only sold sold a million. <laughs> and you know, it, it's right. funny now when you think of the state of the music industry. Yeah. You know, if 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 my next EP only sold a million in 2018, <laughs> you know, I'd be. <laughs> I might be able uh, to sort of retire off those royalties and something about right, it, but right. you know, it, it was it was it was kind of seen as a as a as a bit of a yeah. failure or a bit of a come down. So yes, there was a sort of a vibe about that. On the other hand, um, you know, we never went into studio thinking we have to recreate Running in the Family. We yeah. went in studio thinking we we're going to do something different and maybe change our sound and um and it was the same with guaranteed as well um, although enforced by the unfortunate death of alan murphy yeah, yeah. and then having alan holsworth come in and sort of you know cover for him as it were which was an amazing experience in ourselves so okay. we're never thinking as we're writing oh this isn't sounding as good you know yeah and we always and the other thing was because guaranteed album was our divorce album because we Polydor wouldn't re- wouldn't release the guaranteed album and it mm. took a, a sort of a divorce and then going to RCA BMG for that album to actually come out. Okay. Um, um, and, you know, while we were having all these arguments, which nearly led to a court case with Polydor about the suitability of the guaranteed album to actually be can constitute a, a contractually eligible release, which is a whole other situation, which was very depressing. Okay. Um, one of our defences was was well, we kind of saw ourselves a bit like a Steely Dan, mm. in the sense that we felt that we were here for the long term. We were going to have a long career in the music business, and actually, so what if the next album didn't sell as much as the last album? Maybe, maybe that was the way that things go. You yeah, know, if you right. look at any any band that's been around for years and years and years. You know, it's not like every album has outsold the next album has outsold the next album. There's a kind of waves right. and troughs and and you're you're in favor you're out of favor but we always felt that we were there for the long term and we kind of wanted some faith from yeah. polydor to say listen we've sold a lot of records we made you a lot of money as well as mm-hmm. doing well ourselves 
and we're in here for the long haul so please you know you know indulge mm-hmm. us you know it's not like we're sort of making an experimental mm-hmm. you know album throwing paint at the wall and saying you must put it out because it's our next contractual release you know we're right. all working hard at the songwriting right and you guys are playing Wembley Stadium uh, I mean I it was really interesting as I said moving to England in 1991 and people are you know, you're bonding with new friends over music and stuff. And I'm saying, and I'm saying, yeah, we're, you know, there's this band level 42 that I'm really into right now because of <laughs> listening to you guys on repeat in the car and everyone over there is like, Oh, those guys, they've been around forever. You know, I know exactly who they are and you guys are huge over there. But to me, you're, and in the States, you're this new entity. Those had to be, have been really exciting days. I mean, when you're playing multiple shows at Wembley stadium and, one no, of the biggest I have bands to in the you, UK. Though, it's Wembley Arena, not the stadium. Oh, gotcha. We okay, didn't quite see, get to playing Wembley okay. Stadium, unfortunately. Well, or fortunately, I did see Michael Jackson there, and I did see Madonna there. Okay. And uh, uh, they were both great shows. Um, although it's not the ideal experience, as far as yeah. I'm concerned, just mm-hmm. because they're so tiny. You yeah. know, even though you've got the big screens and blah 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 blah, and the yeah. time aligned arrays which you have nowadays. Mm-hmm. I think stadium gigs are probably a lot better than they used to be. But Wembley Arena was still pretty massive. Okay. You know, we were doing like multiple nights there, you know, 12,000 a night and so yeah. on. So, I mean, it's okay. still a big deal. Okay. See, I'm I'm just a dumb yank. I, I don't know the difference. I, I hear Wembley and I think big yeah. things. Okay, got it. No, well, actually, if I, I should have shut my mouth and not said anything. No, no, no. This is rewrite <laughs> history and Wikipedia probably at the same time. This is better. Oh, this is better. But, I mean, there you have to you are you recognizing that you're one of the biggest bands in the UK at this time i mean they're during like a 3 or 4 year ga- uh, span there or no um i mean i'm not not one of the biggest i mean you know th- there were always Anything. other bands that were like bigger but um and we've certainly um i think we're very very well loved and respected as a band that's you know still there i mean m- most most people i meet really know the band really like the band and half the time they say you know are you guys still playing mm-hmm. and i say yes we're touring every mm-hmm. two years we're doing festivals every year mm-hmm. um so it's it's funny no matter how many thousand people come to see you um right. and they do um there's still a whole kind of audience out there that that we're in touch with us at one time that you know because we're not probably we're not on the radio except in terms of the legacy yeah. records being played right. because we're not on tv you know, you know we're no longer obviously current um you know you kind of fall off the radar but uh, um yeah. yeah i mean you know, when you meet people in the business who know about you know how the music business works then you know it's a fantastic amount of respect and you know we will always meet fans who loved a particular album or a particular single mm-hmm. and um okay um, and it's gratifying to still be able to i mean we go on stage and we we play to people who you know who love it and, and some who come year on um, year after year to see us and then they bring their family with them and they bring a young audience in and then we go to places like Japan where you know after a gap where we'd not played and we go and play and we're playing to full clubs there. Mm-hmm. And these are people that obviously never saw us live, but must've come across us on YouTube and right. who knows what. And then we go to South America, which we did for the first time last year. And we played in, in Chile and uh, Argentina. And it was like, 
being back in the 80s we were playing to people who were like it was so much love it was like wow it was it was like being in in 1986 the 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 outpouring uh, that when we went on the stage was like we've been waiting for you guys for 30 years to come and play here yeah it was incredible incredible good okay so it's it's yeah life is amazing it really is it really is okay great so why did you guys break up in uh what was it 94 with forever now Okay, we, that's what I want. We we went we we went on holiday. We put the band on ice, and we put the band on ice because, um, having gone through the sort of divorce proceedings of the Guaranteed album and thinking that might never get released, and then it get released on RCA, the '90s was a difficult time for us because mm-hmm. everything everyone was into. It was either dance music. Or it was the kind of the the Manchester scene or mm-hmm. the indie scene that was what was coming up, and Britpop was in its infancy there, yeah. and we were kind of not no longer flavor of the month, obviously. Um, and so the 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 Forever Now album, you know, which is great because it was a kind of renaissance with Phil, um, was also tricky because the A and R guys, at RCA was very much more on our case and saying, you know, I want to really be involved in the songwriting, which we were happy for them him to come down and listen to stuff and make comments and so on. But uh, in the end, um, you know, he was kind of going, well, maybe we need a few more songs. Mm. And with, in the, with the benefit of the, having had the, the guaranteed experience where Polydor was saying, we're not going to release it because there aren't enough good songs in it. We thought, well, we, we'll just make sure we just write loads of songs. And so we did. And so then the forever now album was a distillation of about 22 songs into I think 12 or so made the actual album album as it mm, were, mm-hmm. although there was a CD version with more tracks and blah, blah, blah. So that came out and the forever now single came out and, you know, did good and we got on top of the pops and it sort of made the charts and everyone was happy. And then love in a peaceful world was, I think the second single. Mm-hmm. No, all over you was the second single and love in a peaceful world was the third single, but there was some talk of love in a peaceful world being the second single. Anyway, mm-hmm. I think it was, I and I still think it's a great song and mm-hmm. it should have done really well. And for some reason it didn't. Mm. And it all fell off the boil. And at the same time, you know, uh, our A&R guy was the champion of signing, take that to the label and take that uh. all like really flying high. And I could, you could see where the energy was. Yeah. And, and so, and, you know, we were not being asked to go and promote the forever now album. 
and we're saying well why not and they're saying well you know you um, you don't need to and it's kind of like these sort of things were coming back filtering through the management and thinking something funny is going on here yeah you know, yeah being told you don't need to promote you know a, a record because you've done some radio promos that have been recorded in advance doesn't sound like a very sort of a, mm-hmm. a kind of you know a great um you know round of applause of confidence sure sure and so we thought you know what you know and we'd been 15 years album tour album tour we thought maybe what we should do is we should just give it a break and go and do some other stuff and um you know because we're starting to think you know this is starting to become not enjoyable and we don't want it to become that way mm-hmm. and uh, maybe we'll just take a take a break and then we'll get back together at some point and so mark and i went our separate ways and we went but remained friends stuff. i'm guessing everything's yeah. cool okay. yeah we did we didn't we didn't fall out at all it was, okay. it was kind of business decision to sort yeah. of just and and you know and you know it kind of you okay. know, we could afford to sort of take a take a year or two out and uh, um but it ended up being 12 i mean was well, it in hindsight did well, it, it look tw- like the right was, move it was 12 for me mark actually restarted the band in 99 and oh. we came to an agreement about using the name level 42 without okay. me being in the band um, because I didn't want to rejoin at that time. Um, and it was only when Mark invited me on stage in 2005 and then was talking about writing a new album, the Retroglide album. Straight out of my thoughts, we took the jet Blew across Gotham in Retroglide The closest thing to heaven that I found yet In a city full of dreamers, it's as good as Spider to text the X. This comic book caper is nine to five, seven or eleven, and it's so bad. In a city full of schemers, it's as good as it gets. Oh, me, I'm an eight-ball shooting win. There's not a lot of love in the city of sin. You ever get the feeling the sun has set? timing then was like good for me because I thought yeah it'd be nice to come on and rejoin the band and play all the old stuff but play some new stuff as well yeah and not just be a a kind of a legacy thing are you the guy who like maybe would rather keep to himself I mean if there would there be more touring or more I don't know it sounds like he had to sort of talk you into coming out of retirement to come back on stage are you often Uh, reluctant no, I wasn't in retirement, but at the time I was doing my solo stuff and I was doing a few other things in my life. And I just didn't, you know, when he first was talking about, you know, 
going out at level 42, I just thought, well, I don't want to put on my suit again and go out and play Lessons in Love and Running the Family. Um, Because I've got these other things. I'm involved in Delata, this Brazilian band. I've been just involved in a Uruguayan band band called Negrocan. I've been doing gigs with that. I was writing some solo stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I was, you know, know, kind of studying sort of spirituality. So there are a lot of things Mm. that were happening. And, you know, as I say, the first thing that happened with level 42 was we recorded our, our first single when I was still at college. So I'd never had a gap year. Yeah. I'd never done anything else. Yeah. So actually I was quite enjoying myself not doing um, Level 42 for a change. And you had enough financial so, freedom to through royalties or th- previous success that you could sit back and relax for a while without it being an issue? For a while, yes. Okay. Yes, I did. Okay. I did. Okay. Um, and so that was, you know, that was really good. And it, it was, you know, like I say, it was it was... It was only the, the, the fact that going on stage in 2005, the timing felt right to sort of, you know, I immediately reconnected with Mark on stage. And uh, even there was another keyboard player on stage as well, who'd been sort of part of the band, as it were, in mm-hmm. my absence. Mm-hmm. The, the chemistry was just like, like it never gone away. And, it, and Mark really enjoyed it, I could tell. Okay. And, uh, and he said, listen, I'm writing this new album. Come and record. And then there was a tour to follow and he said, would you like to come and do the tour? And so that was me back in, back in the band. And it sort of happened organically quite well, I thought. Mm, Good. Okay. So I want to talk about some of the, you know, the fun things, some, uh, some nerdy questions, if you don't mind. Okay. I know that some people uh, really bristle at answering like, you know, what the, what's the favorite song and stuff like that. But I'm curious if there is a moment within any level 42 song, a hit, a, album track whatever that you are particularly proud of that you think i i added this one little flourish or this one line or this the way my voice sounded when i sang this i've always really liked that or this is a song that i worked really hard on that not that many people know but i think is really special i have a feeling i i may know what one of those songs is but what when i ask you that what what comes to mind well um, I have always avoided the "What's your favorite level?" I know, I, track yeah, question. everyone does, yeah. Um, I mean, we, you know, we've done sixteen albums, and there are some gems among all mm-hmm. of those albums, mm-hmm. and you know, some of them are different. And I'm, I'm, I'm as proud to be involved in some of the songs that I didn't write mm-hmm. um, and didn't necessarily sing as I am on the ones that I did have a hand of the writing of, and I did sing just because of the experience. So, I mean. And, and and perhaps because of the the way it was made. So, uh, okay. so there's not. If a I had, if, if I had to pick, if I had to pick my five desert island <clears> songs, <throat> I could go for five. Perhaps I, I'd go I'd go something about you. Know, I'd go children's say.
point go, it's over. Mm -hmm. Probably last is a moon because I really like I, mm -hmm. I really like the lyric on that, um, um, and then I'd have to have a few more goes because <laughs> then I'd have to restrict re re myself. You know, I love the sun goes down; it's got such a great vibe. Sure. Um, but um, okay. You know, um, but you know things like you know the instrumental the pursuit of accidents. Um, I'm mm. really proud of that because that was laid down. That was a that, that's a first take track oh, with nice. a few top line overdubs. And uh, the road solo I did in the begin in the middle of that, I'm really proud okay. of, and and it was again, it was done on the take, as it were. When my brother and I flew to Las Vegas back in whatever that was to see you guys, you pulled out uh, Kansas City Milkman. Place, you only see 
Oh, and, yeah. I, and I wondered if maybe that was one of the tracks that you're like, you know, we, we actually love this song and not enough of you know it. And um, mm. we want to kind of, you know, bring it back for everybody. Oh, that's great. Okay. No, I mean, that, 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 that was a great song to do. I mean, that was uh, um, musically, um, I, I, you know, I, I'm happy with the, the contribution I made, you know, with the sort of piano riff at, at the beginning that sort of mm. leads into the song. And also, I you know, I came up with some of the melodies for that. And Phil came up with the concept and the lyric, you know, the whole thing, which he got from his dad, who was a journalist, mm. which, you know, his dad quoted that from one of the big sort of new um, American editors of one of the big papers. I forget which one who said, you know, it needs to be written so that a Kansas City Milkman can Got it. get okay. the story, you know. That makes sense. Okay. That's, that's, that's was the thing. So then, then it was a take on, you know, looking at the headlines of tabloid newspapers and, you know, the fact that, you know, I mean, Brexit is a prime example of that, mm -hmm. unfortunately, as I see it. Yes. Um, of, of, you know, you can have these sort of, uh, you know, tabloid headlines and people go, oh, yes, yes, they're absolutely right. This is an outrage and so on. And I'm thinking, you know, yeah, but if you give people certain information and say this is gospel, then, of course, they're going to take an attitude, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. whereas if they... Um, you know, read a bit more and get a few sides to the story, then maybe they'll think something different. But um, yeah, so it, okay. it, it does have a lot of resonate. But I always, I always wonder when, when I'm singing it in front of an American audience, which hasn't been that often, whether you know they have the same take on it and whether they understand actually that it's not actually about a Kansas City milkman. It's, yeah, it's it's actually about somebody who gets their news from a particular source because they don't have much access. I mean, that's changed obviously with the internet now, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, in, in mainly in a good way, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, as evidenced by our conversation, if you can't tell a lot of us Americans aren't that smart and we think you're saying and doing something, or we think we know or understand something and we often don't. And, uh, or at least maybe I'm just speaking of myself. Well, but, I mean, uh, uh, actually yeah. my experience of one of the great benefits of traveling the world um, which this job gives me is I to meet people and you find that, you know, people are people. There are, yeah. you know, there, there are, there are attitudes that you have about a culture or a country um, that when you dig into it and you land and you start talking to people, you find that there are different kinds of people everywhere. You know, there are some who sort of take things at face value. There are some who kind of seem to conform to the stereotype and there are others that, you know, once you dig beneath the surface, you find actually you've got a lot more in common than you okay. thought you did. So, you know, there are smart and dumb people everywhere. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's true. Um, Very true. To be honest. Okay. I mean, I think, you know, that there's there's been obviously a lot of kind of um, there's been some, you know, jokes that done at American expense, uh, 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 you know, in terms of like geography. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that was one of the things I experienced when I was touring in America was that you when you watch the news, you would see a lot of news about what was going on in a very big country, which was America, and you wouldn't get much news of what was going on outside of the country. I mean, that's mm, changed very, now, but yeah. uh, and in '86, you know, it was kind of almost like to parody. It was like, you know, uh, and uh, in in Russia in Chernobyl, there's been a terrible you know, nuclear explosion. Meanwhile, a little girl <laughs> fell over in South Carolina. We go live, you know. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, I think that kind of encapsulates, even still to this day, unfortunately, the majority of Americans' worldview. Oh, that's too bad. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right. So, 
Okay. Uh, now, but I mean, I want, you know, uh, obviously, I'm not saying that's a whole story by any means. No, I know, and, I know, we know. You know, and you know, if I was to say call Americans dumb, then I'm sure Neil deGrasse Tyson would be on my case straight away. Sure. No, I, it's there's the good and the bad. As you say, it's a big, diverse country. Um, okay, I want to ask you something else. Leaving me now, uh, the piano coda of yours at the end of that song is one of the most beautiful things ever recorded. And yet, on single versions, that's the part that gets lopped off, and it drives yeah. me bananas. And yeah. I want to know why and how you feel about that. Well, uh, I mean, I, I've had a prior experience to to good parts of songs being chopped off because of the um, the tyranny of three minutes and forty one seconds. Yeah. That's Gosh. all it is. How can you compress a song? Because you know. If you set out to write, I mean, if you set out to write a single and you've not got that time constraint, you would probably construct it differently. But we we just wrote songs. Mm -hmm. And then as we were writing the songs, we were thinking, well, this one might be a single. And then the record company would agree, yes, that is a single, but it needs to be three minutes and 40 seconds long. And so leaving me now to get leaving me now to to get the, the lyrical arc of the song to be contained within that time period means you haven't got any extra time. We've had to chop yeah. bits out already to get that song. And so, um, you know, unfortunately, there isn't an extra two minutes you can say, well, this bit doesn't count because it's just the piano bit. Yeah. So it's actually five minutes and 40 seconds. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of upsetting, the fact that the piano bit wasn't in. But I kind of, by that time, I thought, well, this is kind of unfortunately the way the cookie crumbles. But, of mm-hmm. course, live we can play it with the piano mm-hmm. bit. And mm-hmm. the album track's got the piano bit in. And yeah. maybe in the future, someday, Radius might even be able to play longer than 3 minutes 40, which, you, you would know. think. Yeah, Well, okay. they can now. I mean, yeah. you know, thank God, with internet radios and all of that. Sure. Okay. Well, I'm going to play the full version at the end of this interview so that people can hear what I'm talking about if they don't know already. But because uh, it's the it brings me to tears almost. It's literally one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. Your coda Thank at the you. end of that song. Absolutely. Thanks. So, okay. So, I mean, you've been, so, <laughs> I kept you longer than I, than I planned, but I'm so grateful for your time. Um, so tell me a couple of stories. I mean, I want to hear what I ask a lot of people is if they have any regrets about their about their careers if there was anything they you know could have or should have done differently maybe and then Mm. i want to just hear like what some of your best memories are um and you know what before that though i want to know i mean you can we talked about again the business side of all of this i don't know how often you guys tour i know that you don't come to the states as often as i would like or at least not to places where i can get to easily but I'm, i'm guessing your income these days is through some royalties and then through constant touring or at least touring whenever you need to or can correct yes uh, that's correct i mean in the old days we we toured to sell albums and that was our main source of income uh, even though we did so much touring but nowadays it's completely role reversal yeah um we make our, our a living from touring and, and playing live and then if we're lucky we, we sell a few copies of, of new albums mm-hmm. uh, um but um the good news is, in terms of America, and I mean, it's something we think about a lot because, especially with the social media, you know, we have a lot of fans over in North and South America who say, mm-hmm. you know, when are you coming? You know, how long we got to wait, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, hopefully not much longer because our agency has has recently um, um, merged with an American agency, American-based agency, Good. and the game plan is to get us to come and do gigs in America where it's 
proved not to be possible before, mainly nice. for kind of economic and overhead reasons. It's not because we don't want to come and play in America. We'd love sure. to come and play more. Mm-hmm. But we're hoping next year, because we've got this new album coming out, um, uh, that we're going to have some some dates uh, over in, in, in North and South America. So that's Good. the plan, Okay. Um, which will be, you know, high time that we, we mm-hmm. come back and play. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. It'll be interesting to come and see how the place has changed since 2010. Oh, well. you don't want to know. So tell me your regret. If you have one, if you don't, that's okay. And then I just want to know what one of your tastiest, greatest memories are. Yeah. I mean, I could have kept I mean, you for hours just saying, what was it like mm. when you knew this guy? And what was it like when mm. you did this and went here and did that? But I, I'm trying to be, I couldn't do that. I mean, I would definitely, I would definitely appreciate more what was going on in the high times in the back end of the eighties that, you know, that I did then. I mean, then it was kind of like you're on this roller coaster and it's all up and down and high and brilliant and, you know, private jets and, touring with Madonna and Tina Turner and uh, being able to buy a Ferrari and all of these sort of things. So yeah. I think I would have a bit more appreciation. I certainly would have uh, invested my money mm-hmm. more wisely rather than justifying to my accountant that I needed to buy a Ferrari <laughs> because it was a good investment, which it wasn't. It was lousy, but it was fantastic. <laughs> awesome. Um, that's great. Yeah, I could have spent the money I earned better, definitely. That's, okay. that's, that, that's probably it. A regret but I mean it's also a learning I mean yeah you know I, I I hear and I heard again today in Star Wars you know sometimes failure you know the best you know failures are a great teaching as well as success and you know just don't get bogged <clears throat> down by the fact that you're a failure and that you failed and that's the end of the story yeah so you know okay that's very wise um, where do you live by the way are you in London I'm in North London yeah North London okay um, and married kids? I'm, I'm married. I have one boy who's 13. Okay. Um, you know, going on full teen sure. and, um, three dogs. I got it. Okay. All right, cool. Just curious about some of the personal things. And then just your best memory when you sit back and you think, you know, you're on a break or you're noodling around on the piano, coming up with conversations in silence. Part two, what do you think? about just think, I can't believe this happened to me. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, just some of the things that did happen. I mean, um, you know, doing doing a stadium tour with, with Madonna was, was fantastic because although it was kind of tough for us because we were on early before the lights, before the sun went down and while people were still finding their seats and throwing mm-hmm. beach balls around and getting their Coca-Cola right. and then going, oh, yeah, I know that one when we play something about you at the end of our set. <laughs> I mean, it was still it was still amazing, you know, to be yeah. on a part of that, even though we were on our own bus and we weren't part of her crew and, you know, weren't exactly living the high life because yeah. of long distances. But it was it was amazing to look back on it and think, yeah, we did that. You know, I met mm-hmm. I met all these people, you know, I've been on stage uh, at the Prince's Trust concert in yes. Bradley and I've had Paul McCartney come up to me and say hi and point at my Jeez. emulator keyboard and say, you know, you, isn't that a machine that you cheat with or something? Yeah. You know, some some cheeky thing that you said. You know, um, yeah. It, yeah um, I've had, you know, a, a memory of um, going out to dinner after our the last I think it was the last Steve Winwood show, which was at New York's at Madison mm. Square Garden. You know, play Madison Square Garden for a start. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And then and then to be taken out to dinner 
with Steve Woodward and his band and special guests, one of whom was Bill Murray. And no, was, really? Uh, and gone to the <laughs> restaurant. And, you know, there's a long table reserved and people are sitting down and there's this beautiful girl. And I go and sit next to her and Bill Murray pulls the chair out from underneath me <laughs> and says, uh, 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 I'm sitting here. You go sit somewhere else. <laughs> Oh, that's the best. Oh, wow. Was she somebody that we would know? Or was she just no, you know, I don't know a beautiful who she was. person? I mean, you okay. know, I think I think maybe she was a love interest of Bill's at the time. Yeah, I don't know yeah. who she was. I can't yeah. fill in any details, which okay. is a good thing. Okay. She was okay. just doing a pretty girl, and I was yeah. just trying to strategically position myself. Of course you were. <laughs> you were and, the rock star. Uh, I was usurped. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. There you have it, Mike Lindup. I hope people who are not level diehard level 42 fans enjoyed that one. I, I don't know. I think it was probably too much in the weeds for some people. It's funny when I hear it, all I hear is me. I'm embarrassed by how like vulnerable I sound. I, I can't explain it. He is a very, he's a VIP in my, uh, in my life. And so I think I was probably more star starstruck than I do get on some of these, or at least just uh, reverential and respectful, probably too much so. So anyway, I, I it's kind of embarrassing for me, for me, but I sure love him a lot. Wow, so much. And I hope you guys heard some music that you like as well. As I mentioned, we're gonna close it out with Leaving Me Now from Level 42. Uh, we didn't play it in the bulk of the episode because I was saving it for the end. And just notice, I mean, this is a great song. It's, it's a pretty typical, I mean, it's a beautiful love song, but it's fairly typical until the end. And Mike does this amazing piano coda at the end of this song that is, that's, it's the magic ingredient. And yet, when you buy like their greatest hits album or whatever, it gets chopped off and it drives me nuts. So anyway, I wanted you to hear the, the full beauty of his playing at the end of this song. As I mentioned before, we have another bonus episode coming out later this week, hopefully. Uh, it's Yan and I doing a recap of all the episodes we've put out so far this year. We answer some of your questions. We give our thoughts and, and uh, behind-the-scenes stories of putting some of these episodes out. So if you're interested in hearing that, sort of, you know, how this stuff works, what goes into it, come and listen to that. I think it'll probably be out on Friday. Huge thanks, as always, to my right-hand man, Yan the Man. Love you, buddy. Thanks for doing this with me. And then um, also, you know how to find us on Facebook and like our page. You can send me a message on there. Or you can email us at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Now, we're this is week one of like a three-week stretch of British alternative legends. At least they're legends to me. So the next two weeks, we're going to be talking to people who are fairly legendary when it comes to British alternative music, especially of the 80s, late 70s, 80s. Okay? So come back next week. One of the greatest songwriters of all time. We will talk to you then. <laughs>